0: From the Annie E. Casey Foundation, I'm Lisa Hamilton, and this is CaseyCast. Today's guest is Ben Hecht, an impact investor who has served as the president and CEO of Living Cities since 2007. Living Cities is a collaborative of 18 philanthropy and financial institutions, the Casey Foundation included, that work together to improve the lives of low-income people and the cities where they live. Casey and Living Cities share a commitment to reducing poverty and a focus on supporting collaboration, leadership, and equity and inclusion. With Ben at its helm, Living Cities has also gained recognition as a leader in taking risks, disrupting the familiar and challenging the status quo for society's gain. Welcome, Ben. Thanks for joining us today.
1: It's great to be here, Lisa. Thank you for having me
0: let's start by talking about Living Cities. It's nearly 30 years old. Can you talk about how it all started and what you're focusing on today?
1: Yeah, it, 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 it's amazing that it's almost 30 years old. Because how many
0: philanthropy collaboratives last? How years? many of them last five years, <laughs> yes.
1: let alone 30 years? And so I think that's extraordinary, but I think it's it really is a recognition of a commitment of leaders like, like you who are on the board of Living Cities. There's no reason that these 18 institutions have to work together. They have all the money they need to work on them by themselves. They have partners all over the country, but they've decided for almost 30 years that they have the potential to do something together that they couldn't do on their own. And I find that to be exciting. And that started out almost 30 years ago um, to try to build an affordable housing industry. Um, How can we actually take advantage of the Community Reinvestment Act, which was regulating banks Um, The the low-income housing tax credit, which was getting new equity dollars to build affordable housing and make it land in the most distressed, uh, underinvested neighborhoods. And so banks, insurance companies, foundations came together and said, let's provide the grants and the loans needed to build that industry. And we have to give ourselves 10 years to, to really build an industry. You can't do that in a day. Um, And that kind of long-term view, that patience, has really been the hallmark of what we're about started at housing, and as America changed, so did the role of Living Cities.
0: Hmm. And so tell me what Living Cities does. How does it help address the issues that it cares about?
1: Well, today, I think you can't be anywhere. You can't pick up a newspaper or or follow uh, any social media without seeing the extreme disparities that we face. Um, And those disparities, despite the efforts of really good people like you and me, have gotten worse, not better. And so what we are trying to do is actually, instead of say, let's come up with a new program, um, we are saying, how can we help local places and cities actually change their processes? Um, So those programs actually add up to needle moving change. How do we actually not just say we're going to help everyone, but we're actually going to help those who have the greatest disparities, which are people of color? And how do we do it with an intentionality that maybe, for whatever reason, we weren't doing before? Hmm. And what we found with this intentionality is you actually get better results. Uh, You know, there's a famous adage is uh, you get what you measure. Hmm. And it turns out you actually have a much better chance getting what you measure. But if you never measure, you almost never get. Hmm. And so we've really focused on how do we help local leaders come together in new ways to address really seemingly intractable problems um, from all the sectors, using data to see whether you're making progress, using capital from philanthropy, from private sector, financial institutions, from government, um, and say, if it's not working, how do we change it so it will? And it's really about systems, not programs.
0: Why do you find cities to be the place we need to focus on change? For really
1: three reasons. One is, it's actually where change happens. Hmm. At the federal level, as we all know, there's paralysis. At the state level, there's less paralysis. At the local level, there's almost none. Mm. And in fact, you get mayors, and they may be a Democrat or they may be a Republican. You won't find that on their website. And they'll all be talking about doing the same thing, Mm. which is how do they create economic mobility for those who most in need across their city? And so you have almost a non-political focus on problem solving, number one. Number two... Um, you're proximate to the problem. I I mean, what I've seen over the years is the more proximate to the problem, the more likely your solution is going to work. And then the third thing is just the demographics. I mean, America is an urban country. 70% or more of America is in cities. And so if we want to really understand what are those interventions that are going to work and work at a scale and we have local leaders who are going to take the risk to try to solve the problems. It's the perfect formula Mm -hmm. um, to hopefully get the kind of success you want.
0: So we understand why cities, let's understand how. (laughs) What is it that city leaders, local leaders are experimenting with to try to increase the opportunity in the places they're leading?
1: What I love is that there's a growing number, and there have been for really the 12 years I've been at Living Cities, a growing number of mayors, who actually want to govern, hmm. and by and by that what I mean is they actually want to fix the mechanics of government so it works for everyone, and 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 we're really riding that that trend. I love that, um, and they, they use both the mechanics, the technical mechanics, and the bully pulpit. Um, And it turns out the bully pulpit is in many ways, in many places around the country, much more powerful Mm. than the the technical because people want to do the right thing, but they need their leaders to tell them what the right thing is Mm. and show them the way. And then what are they doing? Well, I mean, some of the the stuff is what I think of as foundational. Mm. And so all of the Metro Louisville staff have been trained in racial equity. Mm. And, And so it turns out systems are made up of people. Right. And so if the people can't see what is, what is polluting their system, they can't fix it. And so these cities are both uh, helping their staff, professional development of the staff to see it, and then also adopting the most uh, uh, successful interventions for any of those departments so you can then serve all of your, your people equally. Uh, that's one. So they're taking some foundational steps that I find extraordinary. Mm. And then the other is they're saying, well, how do we then use the things we control to change the conditions? Mm. And so in Memphis, for example, there's the majority population are people of color. And they were down at about uh, 10% of their contracting going to people of color. And they're like, that's, (laughs) we, that's, <laughs> that's, we what want we to change got. that. <laughs> <laughs> and so we brought five cities. Now we're up to 15 cities who are doing that. Memphis, for example, in 18 months went from 12% of their spend going to companies of color to 20. Mm. And it was all about an intentionality of understanding what are the barriers to making that goal today. And then how do we overcome that? And what I love is when we work with these cities together, they all kind of coopetition. They cooperate, but they also want to compete. So who's going to do better? And that just helps all
0: Americans. So you've started to touch on... Uh, the issue of racial equity um, as central to the work that you're doing. First, talk about how Living Cities came to understand that because you didn't start with no. the focus on racial equity. How did that, ev- how did your understanding evolve over time?
1: Well, it, it, it started, uh, those who are listening to the podcast can't see me, but I'm a white male. And um, so it didn't start with the incredible insight and vision of the white male CEO of the organization. It came from the extraordinary leadership of the management team who were people of color. I've always had a diverse team my entire career. I didn't have an inclusive organization. Mm. And it was actually after Trayvon Martin was killed, and who was just one in a line of very public black boys being killed on the streets of America's cities. And um, Nadia Wusu, who you know, one of my staff people, been there for five, six years at the time, said... We are living cities. We're about economic opportunity for low-income people and live in cities. And those people are people of <laughs> color, right? <laughs> yes. Well, why don't we say that? Mm-hmm. Um, we, we don't talk about race in our work. We don't talk about race in our office. Mm-hmm. People who are you, the people you trust the most don't actually think they can show up as who they are mm-hmm. in the organization. And so we realized, which I think all organizations realize, we learned a lot from Casey in this because you guys have done that. Too, in fact, pioneered for many of us that you can go through that and still end up alive, and in fact, a better organization. You can. The, the fear that, especially white people, have of doing that is palpable. But then you get through it, and you go, it "Turns out, we're better. I'm better, and it's a better organization." But it's uh, also
0: the recognition that the rising tide does not lift all boats. It does and not. I think. Um, you know, our own experience was that you can be well-intentioned and think that you're going to move the needle for everyone, but it really takes targeted strategies to move the needle for some.
1: And yeah, and you you literally don't know, you can't see what you don't see. Mm-hmm. You know, and I had been running national organizations for 25 years and thought a race-neutral approach would lift all the boats. Mm-hmm.
0: And it does not. And it didn't.
1: <laughs> you know, and it's part of actually spending the time to reflect. And so luckily we had leadership within the organization who, um, instead of uh, saying it's about guilt and shame, said, Well, how can we all work together to change it? It's about and
0: strategy. It's
1: exactly. And so we basically said if we don't get our house in order, how are we gonna help anybody else? Mm. And so we, we and it's a journey that does not end, mm-hmm. um, but we've built our capacities. All our staff have gone through and continue to increase their racial equity capacities. And so that's how we started internally. And then we said, well, you know, once we do that, and this is, again, a Casey idea. So once I had the understanding as a person about what I didn't know, mm-hmm. then I had, okay, well, in my role, what does that mean about how I show up in my role? And then in that role, how do we fundamentally change the systems? And so those systems that we can influence are, one of them, are local governments. Mm-hmm. And so we basically then started talking to local governments and saying, how afraid of this are you? And, and what could we do to give you cover to do these kinds of work on these kinds of difficult issues mm-hmm. that you maybe would like to have that you don't all every day have a group that is the 18 of the largest <laughs> foundations and financial institutions giving you cover? Right. And, and what we're finding over, these, over the last few years in particular, I mean, this is a result of Donald Trump as president, mm-hmm. is that people are realizing we can't stand on the sidelines. Mm. We actually can't say these race neutral approaches work. We can't say that these disparities while growing will shrink without doing something different. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so we're riding this wave. We, our work with racial equity, with cities and with others is not yeah, on, the, on the cutting edge. In fact, we're just trying to keep up with the wave that's mm-hmm. out there that, that actually wants to finally reckon, uh, you know, with this 400-year history in, in our country.
0: Mm, that's fantastic. I'm even curious about um, the transition from city to state. Do you yeah. see the potential for the kinds of things that you're, that you're demonstrating at the local level having um, appeal or possibility yeah. at the state level?
1: So you guys have been great at working with the states, um, and working with the states is critically important. It's really hard as an organization you know, of my size to work at the city, work at the state, work at the feds. You know, it's just there's, it's, 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 you need to be bigger and more re- and, and, and more resourced. Um, but also, I think there's like I think we built a credibility saying we're, you know, we're about cities with the city city actors. That said, <clears throat> the the states can be and need to be an incredible friend. Um, to to cities that are trying to solve these problems, uh, because more and more, unfortunately, we see them actually not being a friend at all. And or in fact, preemption, right? Being an issue, right? I mean, in fact, preemption is the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I was with a, a mayor just last week. I won't say which city, um, but he's a uh, as many places. He's he's uh, he's a blue kind of island in a state of red. Um, and, uh, and it's not that that red or blue is necessarily good or bad, but in the sense that the red state is trying to actually limit the blue city from taking actions that are, are reasonable and, and really actually not. Political, but actually practical, mm-hmm. it's a problem.
0: Mm-hmm. We haven't talked much about the role of the private sector yeah. in this work. Uh, in what ways are um, private actors participating in or, or following the lead of what um, public leaders are doing in I, cities?
1: I, I think it's really interesting. In many ways, the private sector and government are the two most important actors if we want to actually have an America that's more equal. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody else are really bit players in a way. <laughs> and, 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 uh, it's part of why we do focus so much on the local government. I mean, if you think about it, these are billion dollar companies. Mm-hmm. And if those billion dollar companies, what I mean is cities, right. if those billion dollar companies can actually spend their money sm- more sm- smarter, mm-hmm. if they can actually hire and retain people in a better way, if they can be on the bully pulpit to encourage others to act differently, those are powerful, mm-hmm. and. They they're they're not uh, financially so unstable like so much of the uh, the rest of the kind of nonprofit community. Mm. So it's not that you don't need those, but if you can get that actor to play the best they can play, they can be a disproportionately positive actor. Then you have the private sector. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, I I believe the greatest social program that happened in this country was Walmart and Target and Costco gave all their employees a dollar raise in 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 their salary. Mm-hmm. He Ultimately, huge, right? And no, no gov- formal government regulation involved in that. You know, so if you can get the private sector to uh, change the way they act, they can make it, again, be a disproportionate player. Both are challenging <laughs> to, to get to change mm-hmm. um, and often need external pressures um, to make happen, probably almost always need the external pressures to make happen. But one of the things that we're doing with with private sector because of our unique role with both philanthropy and financial institutions and other private sectors is we went out and spent about a year, including with some people from NE, Casey and other members of Living Cities. And we asked companies, how much does um, the fact that the fastest growing population in America are people of color matter to your company? And they said, well, demographic changes matter a lot. And we said, well, how much does it matter that that fastest growing population actually doesn't have the income and the wealth that the current majority population has? They're like, some of us, it matters a lot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, you think about companies like Prudential, who's on our board. You want someone to buy an insurance policy and pay it for 50 years.
0: They've got to have a job. Yeah,
1: (laughs) you just have to have a job. (laughs) And, and, And so... More and more, we saw from this kind of assessment, we did about six or eight-month assessment, that there are a number of companies, a growing number of companies, uh, you know, more than five, less than 30, um, who actually see that it's not only a moral imperative, but an economic imperative to their own bottom line.
0: Right. They, they aren't sustainable if they don't pay attention Simply to these Simply not issues. sustainable.
1: Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, and so we began a couple of months ago... Um, asking all of our friends and family, Lisa, the, the Lisa <laughs> Hamilton's on our board, uh, the folks who've been on that working group, looking at um, was this a real trend? And we said to them, we're not gonna do a bunch of cold calls to companies. We're gonna, you tell us who you know in corporate America, you open the door for us and we're gonna ask those companies, would you be part of a, 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 a an initiative where you would say, yes, we believe this is a national, uh, uh, of national importance. And this, and we'll even tell other companies how we're changing our own operations, what, I, what we say, operationalizing racial equity within our company. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we, we are in active conversation with 15 uh, Fortune 500 companies. Mm. Nobody has said they don't want to have the conversation. Good. Half of them, we've had two conversations. And I'm hoping within the next few weeks, we'll have the first three or four actual conversations. Uh, commitments.
0: That's fantastic. One of the things that you highlighted is the fact that these cities are large organizations that operate in many ways like private institutions do in terms of their procurement, their hiring. They've got the same issues. And so as they figure out new ways to address these issues, they could very easily be great exemplars for private institutions to take up the same kinds of practices. Absolutely
1: right. And again, it goes back to what are you doing in-house, right? Which, again, I would say what you guys have done at Annie e. Casey, in-house, what we're doing in-house. Mm-hmm. If we, we can tell these companies or the city of Memphis, you should hire uh, uh, entrepreneurs or companies owned by people of color, but are we doing it you know so we're now almost 100% of all of our contracting is with people of color mm. we go and do this event in in memphis all of the contractors in memphis are mm. contractors of color mm. it's like we're going to actually you know live the uh, live the values and and people will follow if in fact you can show that it's possible so interestingly to your point about modeling so the University of Chicago, one of my favorite people, uh, Derek Douglas, uh-huh. worked for Barack Obama when he was president. He's and,
0: been on this podcast.
1: <laughs> uh, uh, Derek beat me to the podcast. <laughs> so Derek, Derek is, you know, is a fabulous person. Right. And uh, Derek went to the University of Chicago. You probably talked about it on the podcast, we did. you know, and and what I love about the Derek Douglas story is Derek went to University of Chicago and talking to the president and essentially said, why aren't we spending more of our University of Chicago money in south side of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And if he didn't ask, they wouldn't do it. When a leader asks, oftentimes the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. And they did it, and then after they did it, now there's a whole citywide. it's called the Chicago Anchors for a Sustainable Economy. Mm -hmm. There's 32 public and private organizations who are coordinating their spend towards that end in all of Chicago. And it all started because Derek had (laughs) the the audacity (laughs) to ask that question and then to make it real with the University of Chicago.
0: Absolutely. And the the last thing I'll say in sort of this uh, complementing public sector or city practice with um, uh, private sector practice is that you have the same Motivation. Cities want to thrive and be successful. That can't happen if everyone isn't included. And companies have the same motivation as well. They want to be able to have customers. Totally. <laughs> and uh, it's not going to happen if everyone doesn't have the opportunity to participate in the economy. And, so. I,
1: and I think part of our part of our job in the, the nonprofits or or philanthropy is to make it easy as possible. <laughs> because it, it, the harder it is, the more unlikely it's going to happen. Right. And, and, and so what does that mean? You know, sometimes companies are saying, or, or uh, universities or companies will say, I can't, I can't find the companies to contract with, right? That's the one or the talent, right? The talent to hire, right? Right. These are the things that make me apoplectic, right? Well, how much have you tried, Mm -hmm. you know? And so even if it's being a part of this ecosystem in a local community, that simply makes it easier Mm -hmm. to identify these companies. And you take one more barrier, Away from from why this isn't possible, or put more positively, you make it easier to reach these more awesome. ambitious goals.
0: So I know that one of the things that you do is use data to try to help uh, people understand what they're doing and appreciate the progress that they are making. Talk more about the role that data plays in the work that you are doing with institutions and with cities.
1: Yeah. So so. W- you know, I always looked at, when I look back on my career, I would say what I was always about was more.
0: <laughs> <laughs> not how much, no, just it, more. It more. And, and
1: somehow if you just did more, you'd be solving the problem.
0: Forward. <laughs> and,
1: and, and like, yes, it is progress, but it's not solving the problem. Right. There, there's a difference between the two. And so really um, over time, what we've really realized is, if again, if you don't decide what you want to, what the result is, and then measure it, you never have a chance of achieving it because mm-hmm. you have no idea what you're trying to do
0: <laughs> or where you're staying <laughs> or where you are now
1: right and so so we've really made that an important part of our of our practice um, and that it's not the only part of the practice so for example if you are data driven but you don't have a racial equity lens you're not going to solve the problem mm-hmm. you know if you're data driven but you don't have the community that's engaged in a really meaningful authentic way you're not going to solve the problem mm-hmm. so there are different what we call capacities that organizations and cities need to be able to do whatever, to to, to apply to whatever problem that Mm -hmm. they're trying to solve. But the data is really important. The data allows you to at least have the right diagnosis. Mm. So then you can come up with the right strategy. But along those lines, the other thing we've seen is that even when you have data-driven places, if they don't disaggregate the data, <laughs> they still avoid the problem.
0: Because they're masking the impact on various communities. Totally. <laughs> totally, and, and, and
1: practically speaking, and, and, and Ralph Smith, uh, I hear Ralph Smith, who was a former Casey Executive's head, uh, voice in my head all the time, which is a scary thing, by the way. That's <laughs> a booming voice. <laughs> but 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 you know, Ralph would talk about third grade reading, and 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 you know, you'd go to a community, almost every community, and they're reading overall. The community's reading at an eighty percent level at third grade. All the kids are reading at a at the right level for third grade, 80% are reading. And you're like, that's not that bad. Mm-hmm. But then you look at, well, who's the 20%? And it's 100% the black boys right. in two schools, mm-hmm. right? And so if you're not actually coming up, again, that's the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. If the diagnosis is it's 20%, you'd give all the you know, all the third grades all the same amount of money. Mm-hmm. If the diagnosis is actually 100% of the black boys in two schools, mm-hmm. then you actually solve the problem in those two schools. Right. And that's the thing about about data, it, it is it is really to help you understand uh, the problem, so you can then have the right solution mm-hmm. to to that problem.
0: And Casey does lots of work around uh, helping localities and states get access to the right data, oftentimes data is contained in silos. And so we aren't able to properly see what's going on because uh, we aren't integrating the data in ways that can be helpful. Um, What are you seeing in terms of local leaders figuring out how to um, access the right data they need or even um, bring it together in ways that enables them to see issues across different domains?
1: I think it's a huge, it still remains a huge Mm. gap. Um, I think the awareness that Places should be using data is almost universal now. That is that's a huge far. change.
0: It's <laughs> a huge change. Yeah, that's that's progress.
1: <laughs> so we were we had our board meeting, Living Cities board meeting, a few weeks ago. Lisa, uh, you were there, and we had the mayors. Uh, we had the mayor of Rochester, the mayor of Kansas City, the mayor of Louisville at that meeting, and the mayor. Uh, and we were talking about data at at the meeting from uh, Ryan Ripple from Gates. <laughs> uh, Gates also likes data like you guys do, and. Uh, and after the meeting was over, uh, the mayor of Lew- the mayor of Rochester said to me, "You know, I love that conversation about data." She said, "But the reality is, we can't. Our data can't talk to each other, mm-hmm. um, and because it can't talk to each other, we can't look across all those those systems." Okay. We are not good at solving those data integration problems. He's like, that would be something philanthropy could be huge at helping us. We don't want them to pay the ongoing costs. (laughs) We're okay with that. Mm -hmm. But we would love to get some help to be able to have our systems so so we could get the data across. And then the other thing that we've seen, the other two challenges is even if you get all the data, people don't know how to interpret it. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, What's and it saying? What does it tell you? Yeah,
0: exactly. Because <laughs> it can be an overwhelming amount of data.
1: Overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And so interpreting is the next set of skills that people need. Mm-hmm. And then, again, then actually turning into action. action. Or as, as you know, our, our mutual friend Jeff Edmondson would say, cities and other places love to admire the data. And so can we take, can we, can we move from admira- admiration to execution? <laughs>
0: Absolutely. And those
1: remain the, kind of the, the the challenges of of data, but the need of it, I think we've 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 come, overcome a huge hurdle on the, mm. on people understanding the need.
0: Oh, um, so we'll pivot to the action. And yeah. one of the things you said earlier in the podcast is that working at the local level puts you more proximate to the problem. Um, but even in a city, I'd imagine a mayor is distant from the communities that might be most in need yeah. and uh, the perspective and real experiences of people. Right. How are you seeing cities bridge that divide from uh, local leadership to community engagement? How are they using that to try to problem solve? Yeah,
1: I, I, I think it remains an area that uh, uh, under-invested in, and um, uh, I'm less uh, excited about the state of that, hmm. of, of that. Um, and it's one thing that we're really trying to figure out: how do we better build into our practice? How do we how do we work with the, our cities um, at, at the government level and build in a real and wanted um, uh, civic ongoing civic engagement? You know, where civic engagement is more about accountability than input to a To a transactional decision, mm-hmm. you know, come to a meeting at eight o'clock on Wednesday right. um, help design, help co-create, help actually um, hold people accountable. I think there's a huge opportunity um, to innovate in that area. I think there's a huge opportunity to get mayors to be willing to innovate in that area. Um, the The few things that that I see are more about how do we expand the opportunities for the transactional relationship. Mm-hmm. And so by that, I mean, you know, the, the idea that all you do is hold the town hall. I mean, it's like that actually is rare <laughs> these days. It still happens. But often, I mean, I was with some cities last week and they were saying, we go out every other week to different parts of the, of the city and we just say we're open for business. And then we have a rule that within seven days, we're actually going to respond to the questions mm. in a very public way. You yeah. know, there's mayors who are regularly doing, uh, you know, kind of online meetups you know, Facebook Live mm-hmm. type things. And so, yeah. So I think they're using technology to have more exposure. Mm-hmm. They're using technology to give people more ways to interact, but it's still largely on a transactional Transaction. basis. Not problem solving. It, or mm-hmm. transformational about mm-hmm. the relationship between the citizen and their democracy. Right. And, and I do think that these are the kind of things that we have to figure out um, because the citizen needs to have confidence in the government and the government has to actually believe that the citizen is who they're serving. Mm and i think that's the, uh, an area uh, an area that is ripe uh, for for innovation and really uh, urgent in 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 many ways given mm-hmm. given,
0: given where our nation is let me ask you about two issues that I think are on the horizon for cities that I'm curious about your perspective on. One is Opportunity Zones. Yes. Um, and the second goes back to the founding of Living Cities, mm-hmm. affordable housing yeah. and the crisis that we have around affordable yeah. housing. Let's start with Opportunity Zones. If you would share with listeners um, what the Opportunity Zone uh, law is yeah. and what we think the prospects might be in yeah. local communities yeah. or impacts.
1: So so I have a very healthy skepticism mm-hmm. about them. Um, it, T- uh,
0: tell people what the Opportunity is. In these zones yeah. So are. what?
1: The, so what they are is um, wealthy people have capital gains taxes, um, and the regular income, like we get from our salaries, is taxed at a certain rate. And capital gains are gains from investments. So you buy a piece of property, you sell it. That sale is actually gain is taxed at a different rate than your personal tax. And so there were um, really um, some high tech folks said, "Are there ways that we could actually?" not only not pay those capital gains, but have it serve a, a, a public purpose. And so they, they came together and they convinced Congress to pass these opportunity zones. And the idea is that um, you take the amount that you would have had to pay from in your, uh, uh, your gain, you take your gain from capital gains, and instead of paying taxes on it, you put it in a fund. And that fund will then make investments in certain geographies that have been identified as an opportunity zone. Um, and and the idea is like other zones, uh, empowerment zones, enterprise zones. Over the years, the idea is that there are underinvested, disinvested communities that, if you could target investment to them, you would make them better. Mm-hmm. I think I think the concept's flawed, honestly. Mm. <laughs> so if if it I don't believe more in than a, just a built it, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And and so if if the concept's flawed, then throwing more money on a flawed concept is my skepticism. Mm. So that said. There are ways, of course, like any tool, it can be put for good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea would be, can you create these local funds so the local communities would be able to understand where those monies would be best be invested locally? The problem is there are no regulations that require it, it to be spent only except in a certain geography. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could imagine, any, any listeners know, if you, if you take any city, take San Francisco, just for example, or New York, Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the difference between a, a making an important investment in a community that will change its character and just accelerate gentrification is a very fine line.
0: Right. There's no guarantee that the people who live there now are going we'll to benefit, benefit from
1: it. From those investments. Right. And so that's what they are. And the, the real question, and I think, in everyone's mind is, will it be good or will it be bad mm-hmm. overall? You know,
0: But an important issue cities are going to have to grapple with, and they are an important intermediary yes, in they are. Um, identifying where these opportunity zones exist and perhaps even protecting the interests of um, their uh, citizens and residents who live in the places where these investments are very likely much, to happen. Very much. So something important on the horizon for cities to be thinking about. Yeah. Um, and it's related to, but still different from the issue of affordable housing yes. Um share with us what the affordable housing crisis looks like yeah. in America now, and even compared to 30 years ago when Living Cities began.
1: Yeah, so it is it is very interesting that we spent our first 15 years just doing affordable rental housing, mm-hmm. spent the last 12 doing anything really but the built environment, and now we realize, of course, they're all necessary but not sufficient. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so what the current housing crisis is is that we have at least 11 million people, some people say as many as 40 million people, who are paying more than 50% of their income for rent. Mm. That's in addition to many of those people also paying more than 30 or 40% of their income for transportation. Wow. And so you are looking at a huge number of Americans. um, With nothing left. With nothing left. Nothing left. And so the exigency of the problem, the extremity that people are living day to day. You know, there was a recent Federal Reserve study, and these come out all the time, but this was just a couple of weeks ago that said something around 40% of, the, of Americans can't meet a $400 emergency right. bill. And what was also in that report, which was less reported on, that an even greater amount are saying that they already don't pay all their bills every month. Mm. And, 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 and so this is a real issue, and it's an income issue, but of course it's a wealth issue. Because mm. if you have wealth, you can sometimes smooth right. over those problems. Right. And and so so affordable housing. What does it mean? So it means that we don't have enough of it. Um, meaning, there's not enough of it that you could go and find something that is affordable. And number two, it's not in the right places. Mm. And because of our history of segregation uh, and and discrimination, um, you know, the the height of racism was is, is redlining. Mm. Um, which is real estate, you know? And so real estate, whether it's home ownership or rental, is just the, the, the ground zero of racism. <laughs> right. and, and, and so uh, what we know with Raj Chetty and others who people like Casey and other institutions have supported is that if a, if, a, if a kid of color grows up in a community that is a opportunity community, which just means a community where you hope, well, I, well all I know is where I grew up, <laughs> right. right? A white boy in New Jersey, not rich, but not poor. Mm-hmm. And, but it was safe. The schools were good enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and uh, I, I had, I had food on the table. Mm-hmm. And it's like, when a kid grows up in that, this, like people paid Raj millions to figure this out. And we all of course <laughs> say know what it. We know yeah.
0: intuitively. Right, right. But it's, right. you
1: have to document it. And and that if is that if the, it, it is different when, when the black boy grows up in the community I grew up with, then it grows up in parts of Baltimore here mm-hmm. where we are. Mm-hmm. And it has nothing to do with other than the neighborhood. And in fact, um, a uh, uh, economist friend of mine says that if you could change two factors for black boys, it's put them in a in an opportunity neighborhood, and solve um, the school discipline mm-hmm. problem, you actually would solve a huge percentage of uh, the barriers. Of, of the barriers. Right. And and so, can you get affordable housing that is available in these opportunity neighborhoods? So first of all, they have to be built. Right. There was a, there was a great article in the New York Times last week that showed what percentage of land in major American cities is zoned for single family? Mm, how much? Most, so so. I'm gonna get this, the data <laughs> r- wrong, but you can look it up. It was Emily Badger who was a New York Times reporter. It's worth looking it up. Um, but it, in many cities, 90 plus percent of the land is zoned for a single family. Mm. You, you can't have anything but single family, which means it's just for white people. And it's for people who can afford single family on, oh, a, on, on a lot. You know, I think San, I want to say San Jose was in the 90s. Yeah. I think DC was in the 70s. Um, you know, like most cities were somewhere between 50 Seven. and 90 percent.
0: Wow, which means the majority of housing. People who are at the lower end of the income spectrum are locked out. Of they them. literally can't legally live there. They legally can't. And,
1: live and there. so we have to change the, we have to think about zoning and land use completely differently. Mm. And some places like Minneapolis are doing that now. They basically are saying every, you can build up to four units on every lot in mm. Minneapolis. Mm. You know, it doesn't mean they all will be, but, but it could. means you can. Right now in those cities, you literally can't. Mm. You can't even put, so like in my house in, in Washington DC, we have a garage. And so my wife and I are thinking, maybe we turn that into an accessory unit and we rent that, Mm -hmm. right? It provide some income to us, but it also huge add to the housing stock in Washington, Mm -hmm. right? If everybody did that, that's one of the solutions, not the only solution. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we have to look at all of our solutions to add. How do we just simply build more more. Mm -hmm. and then have it in the right places? And then I think the other thing is, is we have to decide what is the nation that we want to live in? Mm -hmm. And do we believe that people should pay that much? You know, and I believe there will always be if people, is is it 15% of our population? Is it 25? I don't know what the right percentage, I don't know what the right, you know, uh, realistically is, mm-hmm. but that we as a society have to help.
0: And housing is such a fundamental need for families. And when we look at what the crisis creates in terms of real experiences for families, the high mobility rates it creates or People accepting unsafe housing that then puts their children at risk health wise, um, it has so many collateral consequences that I think people just don't appreciate. So, um,
1: but they appreciate it in their own life.
0: They, they do. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they don't appreciate it in the public realm, right. and I think that's what we have to go back to right. is to understanding that we actually all have a responsibility for our neighbor, mm-hmm. and and you know who pays for it, how it's paid. Those are all things that smart people can negotiate.
0: Well, you have written a book for, actually, um, <laughs> but your most recent book is called Reclaiming the American Dream. This dream, this term, the American Dream, can mean different things for different people. I'd like to close by asking you, what does it mean to you?
1: Um, what it means, I actually get teary thinking about this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't think anybody's cried on my podcast. I, know, I get teary
1: <laughs> thinking about this because I think of the opportunity that but like I, I would say, my family lived the American dream. My father was white, right? He grew up poor, literally um, on uh, getting canned food during the Depression, um, and standing in line going. He was the older brother. He had went down, got the got the food, brought it back home. You know, fought in World War II, uh, came back, went to college on the GI Bill, bought a house uh, with FHA financing. All of those things, same black soldier, same kid down the block from my father, didn't have the same opportunity.
0: Mm. That's not right. And, and you're here because you had those. I'm here challenges. because I had it.
1: Uh, we have wealth in our family. his family had no wealth. He had no wealth. He built it. You know, we were able to go to college. All of those opportunities are because of a system that we created. It wasn't because my father was any more <laughs> extraordinary than that black soldier who mm-hmm. also fought in World War II or the brown one. It's that we had the society we, we, <laughs> very intentional of who was going to benefit. Mm-hmm. And and so I want everyone to have that same opportunity my father had. It just means that we have to create these new normals, um, whether they're, they're a GI built type thing. I'm not saying it has to be a huge federal program, although I do believe in reparations. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I, what I do believe is that we have to take out the pollution that's in our local systems that currently keeps those barriers And and what my book is about are examples from all over the country, not just in New York and San Francisco. Actually, I intentionally went to the Midwest, to Texas, to Oklahoma. I went to the places where they say the populations who are most suffering right now are the poor people of color and whites. And it turns out in all of these examples that I had, that when you solve for the people of color, you know what? um,
0: Angela Glover, Blackwell, and Herb Cut. Right. And
1: targeted universalism. It's true. If you build a program that helps kids who are dropping out of high school to stay in high school and actually graduate high school with a college degree at the same time, Mm -hmm. helps those white kids too, because they're dropping out at the same rate. And so it's examples of that all over the country. And it's about mutually reinforcing. We know we have to increase education. We know we have to increase income. We know we have to increase wealth. We know we have to help people get connected to opportunities. But even more importantly, we need to re-knit the social fabric where we say we actually care about our neighbor. And, And we're seeing communities all over the country doing it. And it's the stories of the Derek Douglases who basically said, I'm leaning into the power I have to make the new normal what it needs to be for the 21st century.
0: That is beautiful. Well, I am so appreciative of you helping us understand living cities and what's going on in major American cities and the Opportunity and innovation that's happening there uh, and some of the things we need to continue to think about as the work goes forward. So thank you so much for being on the podcast, Vince. Great having you.
1: Thank you for having me. And
0: thank you for allowing me to partner with you in Living Cities. It really is wonderful. It's
1: great to to have you as a partner. (laughs)
0: Um, And I want to thank our listeners for joining as well. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, please rate our show on Apple Podcasts to help others find us. You can ask questions and leave us feedback on Twitter by using the CaseyCast hashtag. To learn more about Casey and the work of our guests, you can find our show notes at aecf.org forward slash podcast. Until next time, I wish all of America's kids and all of you a bright future.